We're going to be speaking on Reacher 1 out of Luke chapter 15. And Pastor mentioned, um, he said, if I was asked what a glaring weakness of Fellowship Baptist Church would be in a millisecond, he said, I would say that it's our personal evangelism. Now, I, I want to make something clear that Fellowship Baptist Church is reaching people. But understand, in fact, in, in staff meeting, we've got a whole list of names of people that we're following up on and reaching that come to this place every week. When pastor says that, that, that he feels like it's a weakness, you've got to understand it's the, it, it gets more specific than the fact that we're just not reaching our world or our community. It's personal evangelism. Okay, there's a difference from people walking in here on a Sunday because they're looking for a church. And then you bringing them with you on Sunday. There's a difference between you looking across the auditorium and saying, man, I'm so glad so-and-so is here. I'm going to make them feel welcome. And then you inviting your coworker to come with you. Or sharing Christ with your coworker. Do you get the difference there? Our church is not stale. We haven't plateaued in reaching people. In fact, you'll hear in the business meeting, God's given us some great fruit this past year. And, and we're, we're seeing a lot of folks baptized and fall on the Lord. We just know that if each one would reach one, outside of those that just walk into this place from God's sovereignty bringing them here, if each one would reach one, we would maybe have to go to like two services every Sunday. Now, I'm not wishing that on anybody, especially the nursery workers. But that would, listen, that would be the result. We couldn't fit people in here. If, if every disciple was working to make another disciple, then, then we, we haven't even re reached the, the tip of the iceberg if all of God's people in this room alone were fired up about reaching people personally for Jesus Christ. Here's why we have to go forward in personal evangelism. J.D. Greer said this. When churches see success, they tend to get settled. Within a generation, they move from mission to maintenance. And they go from being reckless in the mission to being comfortable in the institution. Has our church seen and experienced a little bit of spiritual success? Yeah. God's been so good to us. Hasn't he? He's been so good to us. It would be our tendency, would it not, to get comfortable. To settle. And we heard great messages on that Saturday night and Sunday morning, but I want us to think in this realm of being missional. I want to think of in this realm of, of, of pursuing people with the gospel. Could we not come in here and look around on a Sunday morning and we had 475 people or so here today and say, man, praise the Lord for that and just settle in without realizing that 475 People's really not all that much when we have 20,000 plus people in our community. Not to mention the surrounding communities. There's a lot of people that still need Jesus. And we need this message tonight. Luke chapter 15 and verse number 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he, that's Jesus, spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you? Having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, 
rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now he pulls out of the parable and he gives an absolute truth. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. Jesus is minding his own business, eating dinner, when a large group of, of no good for nothing people draw near to him. Some of them were publicans. We would know them today as tax collectors. That meant they were the most hated and despised people of their day. And it's not just with that sarcastic disdain that we look upon our IRS workers today. I mean, it was legit hate. It's because they were employed by the government. Well, they were government officials, but they were working for the wrong government. In other words, they were taking taxes, they were working for the Roman government, taking taxes from their fellow Jews, and not just taking what, what was lawful, they were stealing money from their fellow countrymen, and that ticked the Jewish people off. They didn't like these publicans. The other half of these people who were drawing near to Jesus were simply called sinners. That didn't mean that they just disobeyed God. It, it was actually referring to something more specific. It was referring to the fact that they rebelled specifically against the traditions and the, uh, of the religious rulers, the, the religious teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes of their day. And so these religious rulers couldn't stand what they called sinners. Luke tells us that these publicans and sinners uh, drew near not just to follow the new popular preacher in town, but because they wanted to hear him, the text says. Apparently there was something that Jesus was saying that they had never heard before. Something he was preaching that intrigued them because it differed so much from that of the Pharisees' message. Here's what they were hearing that, that, that really perked their ears. It was called the gospel of grace. And how refreshing that was to hear as opposed to the teaching of the Jewish law that they could never seem to measure up to their whole life. Those publicans and sinners weren't the only ones there. They were the only ones at the table. But there were scribes and Pharisees that happened to be standing at a distance observing what was going on. This was always the location, it seemed, of the religious rulers. Close enough to Jesus to know what was going on, but far enough away to feel comfortable criticizing Jesus for what he was doing. Sounds like some church member. That's exactly what happened on this day. These religious rulers were murmuring, the text says. That means they, they were talking underneath their breath. They were mumbling and here's what they said quietly enough so no one else could hear, so they thought. They said, this man, they didn't even refer to him by his name. They said, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with, them, eateth with them. He welcomes sinners. This man invites sinners. He receives sinners. He eats with them. He lets them sit at his table. It's clearly not about the food here, it's about the fellowship. It's clearly not about what is being served. It's about what's being said. It's like he enjoys talking with them as though they are his friends. They thought in their heart, this isn't okay. 
This is a disgrace. These people are supposed to be rejected, not received. They're supposed to be enemies, not friends. They're supposed to be ignored, not fed. They're supposed to be criticized, not cared for. They thought they were speaking quietly enough for no one to hear. Little did they know that Jesus was God. And they didn't have to speak loudly for him to hear because he doesn't just recognize the language of our mouth. He can articulate the language of our heart and our mind. And so Jesus, knowing those religious rulers were in the distance, responds to their murmuring by telling three short stories. One about a shepherd and a lost sheep. One about a woman and a lost coin. One about a father and a lost son. And all three stories have the same exact point. And I'll tell it to you in five words. Lost people matter to God. Please don't let the simplicity of that just pass you by. This is what this text is about. Lost people matter to God. Listen, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're asking this. If Jesus really knows God, then why is he at the table with lost sinners? Jesus, having heard their murmuring, tells them these stories, and he answers their question like this. If you, Pharisees, really know God, then why aren't you at the table with us? You see, these stories were told to the religious rulers, and for the publican and sinners. What do you mean? Think about it. If the theme of these stories is lost people matter to God, then that would have been very encouraging and comforting to the publican and sinners at the table when Jesus would have told them these stories. They would have known that, hey, you matter to God. It was for them. But it also would have been a scathing rebuke to the religious rulers because lost people didn't seem to matter much to them. Verse 4 through 7 describes the heart of a shepherd and how he goes after lost sheep, even if there's only one lost sheep. And it's in these few short verses that we learn three things about the heart of a shepherd for his lost sheep. Which goes even deeper than that because it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God for the lost. And it goes even deeper than that because it gives us instruction for how our heart ought to be towards the lost. Lesson number one. The shepherd purposefully neglects the 99 to find the lost one. Verse 3 says, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the 99 in the wilderness? The shepherd in the story has an average-sized flock of his day, a hundred sheep. He's making an evening count before laying down and expecting to count a hundred sheep just like all the days before, except this night, the story says he's one short. He only counts 99. You understand that those sheep probably weren't his directly. They were entrusted to him by the owner of the sheep, and so if he lost but one, that meant he would have lost his job. He's immediately alarmed, and so Jesus asked the questions to his listeners that day. What would you do if you were that shepherd? Jesus wanted them to think like a shepherd. He wanted them to feel what a shepherd would feel. And he said, if you were a good shepherd, you would be so consumed with the lost one that you would leave the 99 to go find it. And notice where he said a good shepherd would leave the 99 in the wilderness. Not a safe little gated pasture. In a desolated, isolated desert. Think about that. Leaving a defenseless, dumb animal in a desolated desert without the protection of a shepherd would have been beyond risky. It would have been insane. And here's why. He might have found his one lost sheep only to come back to 30 dead sheep. The question is why. Why would he be willing to risk that? 
Well, in answering the question, I think Jesus wants us to feel like the very pulse of God. And the answer is simple. God's not satisfied with any of his flock being lost, even if it's just one. Peter, Peter confirms that when he said God is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now think about how many sheep there were. There were a hundred. In the other two stories following this, the numbers are entirely different. The woman who lost a coin, she only had ten coins. So that made her one lost coin more valuable. The father who lost a son only had two sons, so that made his one lost son more valuable. The shepherd lost one sheep, but hey, he still has 99 left. We wouldn't blame him, would we, for letting one go because he still had so many, right? But that's not how a shepherd thinks of his sheep. To the shepherd, there's great value in one. And the same is true for God and how he thinks of lost sinners, which is the greater point here. He values just one. In fact, God loves every sinner as though there was only one sinner to love. Did you catch that? God loves every sinner as though there was only one sinner to love. And that's so different than the world we live in. We live in a world that is so impersonal. We, we live in a, in a world where, where it's so full of technology and, and it's, it's as though, though they've automated everything so we don't have to deal with people. When you call customer service, how long do you, and how many buttons do you have to push before you get a real life person? And even at Walmart, you can self-check out and not have to talk to a person. And when you go pump your gas, you can do so without having to talk to one person. And it's though in our world, people are no longer known by their name. It's like we're just numbers. God says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. But it's though names don't even matter. People are just numbers, address number, area code number, zip code number, phone number, ID number, social security number, bank account number, credit card number, PIN number, and I could go on and on and on. I just want to say thanks be to God that we are not just another number to Him. He has fearfully and wonderfully made us. He knows us in the very number of hairs that are on our head. And when it comes to lost sinners, he values them so much that he will neglect the 99 to go and search out the lost one. Is that how you feel about the lost? Do the lost matter to you that much? To help you answer that, not just honestly, but accurately, Maybe we should stop and think about what it might look like for us to leave the 99 in search of the one. We're not shepherds and we're not dealing with sheep. We're dealing with people. It would mean that you have such a heart for the loss that you're willing to leave your comfort zone at church to minister to the person who needs a friend. It means you're, you're searching. You are searching for the guest that is sitting by themselves. And you're willing to leave your, your comfort zone, your seat, to join them in their seat. It means when you walk into your fellowship Bible class and you see a new couple or a new individual sitting by themselves and you don't know them, then you're willing to leave your familiar friends to become a friend with a stranger. 
It means when you're greeting and ushering and hosting and working the parking lot, you're not getting up, caught up in conversations with the 99 that you're close to because you're actively searching for the one lost sheep that needs welcomed and received and loved. Here's what it means for us to have the heart for the one like God does. It means that we see everyone as someone who has a soul. And that soul is destined to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. It means every classmate you have has a soul. And every teacher you have has a soul. And every co-worker has a soul. And every family member has a soul. And every bus kid has a soul. And every cashier has a soul. And every waitress has a soul. It means your doctor has a soul. And your kid's babysitter has a soul. And your kid's coach has a soul. And the homeless man has a soul. And the drug addict has a soul. And when you believe that everyone is someone with a soul. Here's what will happen. You will be more present when God brings you into contact with those souls. And not just present, but sensitive to their spiritual needs. When you see a classmate isolated and left out, you'll talk to them. When you see a teacher stressed out, you'll encourage them. When you pay for your groceries or you leave a good tip at the table because that's what Christians do, you'll leave an invite card with it. When you drop off and pick up your kids from the daycare, you'll find opportunities to enter into spiritual conversation or invite your babysitter to a church event. That's what it means to leave the 99 and go after the one. Is it comfortable? No. Is it necessary? Absolutely. Lesson number two, the shepherd relentlessly pursues the lost. Four important words at the end of verse four. Until he finds it. I want you to look at verse four. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness? Watch. And go after that, which is lost until he finds it. Did you notice the wording? The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. See, that's the difference between losing, a sh- losing sheep and losing a dog. Dog, you can stand on your porch and whistle or yell, and maybe they'll find their way back. Sheep don't do that. The shepherd had to go after the sheep, and the same is true for the lost. You have to go get the lost. That means you have to talk with the lost. And you got to eat a meal with the lost. And you got to become friends with the lost. And it means that the Great Commission is, is a commission to go out into the world and preach the gospel. It's not a commission to sit on the porch and yell at all the lost sheep to come to you. Or to sit in your comfortable chair and let them come to you. And notice that the shepherd isn't searching haphazardly. He's searching relentlessly. The verse says, until he find it. It doesn't say if he finds it, but until he finds it. That means this church, he's not stopping until he does. It doesn't matter how long it takes until he finds it. It doesn't matter how far he has to go until he finds it. It doesn't matter how much it's going to cost him until he finds it. And here's the point. God will not give up on the lost. Do you remember personally how relentlessly God pursued you? How many responded and said yes to salvation the very first time you heard the gospel? Would you raise your hand? I saw two hands, three hands. How many had to be invited to church more than once? Hear a message more than once? Be invited to Jesus more than once? Raise your hand. That's 98, 99% of the people in here. Aren't you thankful God didn't stop until he found you? But what I've noticed about Christians is that we give up too quick. 
when it comes to our pursuit of the lost. See, they tell us no one time and we think that's our cue to never invite them again. After all, the blood's not in our hands anymore. They stood us up for friend day again and we instantly think they're not interested and just told us, yes, I'll come to get us off their back. And so we just never entertain the, the possibility of them coming. Or they come with us one time, but they never come back and we somehow think our job's done. Like I had a friend for friend day. Boom. I got a little card filled out and they came. Boom. And we took them to lunch and boom, now my job's done. Um, I'm thankful Jesus didn't move on until he found me. Let me get more specific. I'm thankful Viola Hodges didn't move on until Jesus found Candy Prater. Because she was her babysitter and kept asking and asking and asking. And had she just felt a little uncomfortable and not asked and not relentlessly pursued my aunt, oh man, the ramifications of that, I don't even want to think about it. I'm really glad that John Vaught and Dean Alling and a couple others relentlessly pursued Jimmy Powell until God found him. And Heather's thankful too. And I'm thankful that, 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 that John Vaught, Lorraine Potts, and Jim Potts relentlessly pursued Steve Stall until God found him. And Sandy's thankful for that too. And I could go on and on pointing people out who, 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 who our shepherd left the 90 and 9 to come and pursue you. And you told him no, and he pursued you again. And you told him wait, and he pursued you again. And you told him never, and he pursued you again. And you're sitting in fellowship at this church because a gracious, gentle shepherd didn't give up on you. Yet we give up on people all the time. And we shouldn't. Be annoying? No. Be forceful? No. Be belligerent? No. Be insensitive? No. Be bold? Yes. Be persistent? Yes. Ask again? Yes. Invite again? Yes. Pray for them again? Yes. Like a shepherd, be relentless in your pursuit. Lesson number three. The shepherd experiences pure joy. When he finds the lost one. Look at the wording of verse 5 and 6. And when he found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I want you to notice, church, what the shepherd doesn't do. He doesn't berate the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't guilt the sheep. He doesn't shame the sheep. And he doesn't lecture the sheep. And we're talking about the sheep that strayed from him. He didn't stray from the sheep. We're talking about the sheep that got itself in this predicament. The story says he approaches the sheep that is either one or three things. Stuck, scared, or stubborn. Meaning that when the sheep saw its shepherd, even though it was scared or stuck or whatever, it's not like a dog. It's not going to go and start licking on its owner. It stays there. And the shepherd has to walk all the way to the sheep. And when he does, he picks it up gently, lays it on his shoulder. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. The Bible says he has nothing but pure joy. So much joy that he believes he's not the only one that should be rejoicing over this. 
In fact, he gets back to the village and he begins to knock on his friends and his neighbor's door and he says, I'm going to have a party. What are you going to have a party for? Well, I found my one lost sheep. And they would think, that's it? You're throwing a party because you found a stray animal? Wait, wait, didn't you have 99? And you left them and you kind of want me to reward you for that insanity? One sheep? Watch. It's that hesitation to rejoice with the shepherd that Jesus is most wanting to address. Please get this. There's four key words or phrases in this story. Lost, go after, found, and rejoice. And the phrase rejoice with me is the punchline that Jesus uses to address the self-righteous Pharisee's heart towards sinners. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, if you really are my friend, if you really are my neighbor, you won't criticize me for going after the lost. You'll join me and you'll celebrate with me when we find them. Let's go deeper. Jesus is actually exposing the fact that these religious rulers might not be real friends and neighbors after all. They might not really know God based on their attitude towards the lost. And I believe it is true that your relationship with God is authenticated by your attitude towards the lost. Jesus is saying this, don't miss it. If you really know what it's like to be lost and then to be found. If you really know what it's like to be blind, but now you can see. If you're really a friend and neighbor, you won't sit around and criticize the lost. Or those going after the lost. Instead, you'll join the search party. And you'll rejoice when the lost are found. After all, that's what God does. Verse 7 says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Did you think that song was just some creative play on words? He pulls, we're out of the parable now. We're out of the story. We're into absolute truth. Jesus tells us what goes on in heaven when one sinner is found. And he says there's a party going on. There's a celebration going on. There's rejoicing going on. There's worship going on. There's praise going on. And I believe what he's saying is that Jesus and the angels are looking for an opportunity to rejoice. No, I believe every Sunday morning, I believe Jesus, in my mind's eye, I imagine that he and the angels are in heaven peeking over the portals of glory and looking down to maybe follow one of our bus routes around. And it stops at one of the houses and, and the bus workers get that little kid out and the angels and, and God are looking over saying, oh man, I hope those bus workers love on them today because their love's going to show them what what I, how I love them and what they mean to me. And, and then he follows them into, into this place and, and they're looking as, he, as that little bus kid goes upstairs to the pre-K through kindergarten section or the first through third section or the J-12 section or the impact student section. And he's thinking, oh man, I hope those workers are in a good mood today. I hope that Sunday school teacher's prepared today. I hope they don't give this kid a Saturday night special. He needs the gospel. He needs preparation. He needs love. Oh, we want reason to rejoice today. And, and when children's church starts, they're thinking, oh, I hope that team's prepared today. Last time they weren't. 
I hope, they're, I hope they're ready today. I hope they have the heart of a searching shepherd today. That little bus kid needs saved. He's about to go home. This is the last chance. Oh, man, they're looking for a reason to rejoice. At 1045, I have a feeling in my mind's eye, at least, I see God peeking over the portals of glory and, and, and watching as, as the single mom walks into this place. And her husband just left her. She has no idea where her income's going to come from. And, and she's got one job, but she knows she's going to have to have a second, but she can't afford a daycare provider at the same time. And she has a co-worker that goes to Fellowship Baptist Church, and at just the right time, the co-worker said, why don't you come to Friend Day? And so she walks in, and I can just imagine God is peeking over the portals of glory and saying, oh boy, I hope pastor's ready today. I hope people are friendly today. I hope the gospel's going to go forward today. They want, heaven wants to rejoice. Do you get that? Is that sinking in? That's the heart of God. And God's rejoicing reveals his priority. According to the end of verse 7, read it one more time. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Watch. More than ninety and nine just persons which need no Repentance. Would you look up here and catch this? God is more concerned about one lost soul who repents than he is with 99 self-righteous souls who don't think they need to repent. And that truth brings us to what I feel the question of the text is for, for us to answer tonight. Who are you most like? The searching shepherd or the self-righteous Pharisee? You think about that. I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking exactly as I think when I type this question out and I search my own heart. I thought upon looking at this, well, I'm the searching shepherd. You know why? Because when someone gets saved, I rejoice. When someone gets baptized, I clap. When I see a lost sinner, I don't think I'm better than them. I can't be the self-righteous Pharisee. I, I, I have the heart of a shepherd. And then God said, don't, don't forget what you're preaching. I'm not just talking about my attitude when a sinner comes and gets saved. He said, are you really a searching shepherd? Meaning, when is the last time that you left the 90 and 9, your comfort zone? What was safe to search out the one lost? I don't think I'm a self-righteous Pharisee in the sense that I won't eat with sinners. But I might resemble the Pharisee in the sense that I won't go after them. And I, I don't know if I've ever sensed, Pastor, a Pharisaical spirit in our church. I don't care if someone's done drugs. I don't care if they've been in jail for years. I don't care if they're a little seven-year-old preacher's kid. Every time someone gets saved or baptized here, I feel like it's just like a universal celebration. I don't feel like there's any Pharisees singing, oh, I don't know why God accepts them. But I'm not real sure that we search for the lost. And that's where our church is. Our church loves the lost. 
It's just individually we don't really go after them. Now, some of you do. I know for a fact some of you do. People are in these chairs today because of some of you. And for that, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful. But I think I agree with Pastor in the sense that maybe a majority of us, we aren't relentlessly pursuing the lost. We just play it safe. I mean, if somebody asks us, we'll talk to them about it. But we don't leave the past here to go get them. Does that make sense? And that's why we are coming up with the Reach Your One journal. And I want the guys to begin passing this out as I begin to introduce the heart behind this. Everybody 16 and older will get one. If we have more left by next Sunday, those younger than 16 who want to participate can get one as well. We so badly want every one of you and me to take a step forward in our personal evangelism effort. Please listen as they're passing this out because I want to warn us about something. Okay? Please listen. Don't miss this even if you're, if you're getting one right now. This isn't about bragging rights. This isn't about numbers. People aren't numbers. This isn't about Fellowship Baptist Church becoming a bigger church. Please get this. Please get this. Because if, if this is somewhat of a competition... If this has had any carnal motive whatsoever, we need to put these books down. Listen, we are after lost sheep that if they don't get saved, they're going to a real place called hell. Are you hearing me? That's what we're after. And so here's what I'm saying. That, that it's not necessarily about how many you win to Christ. The challenge needs to be how many am I going to warn Okay? The fruit's not up to you. The results aren't up to you. I feel like we got a good structure to where everybody stands a pretty good chance at seeing some fruit that remains. But if you get at the end of, of 2019 and you've got some names written in there and you don't have no fruit, you need to ask yourself this question. Did I try my best? That's it. Did I try my best? If you tried your best, I don't want to be, just give a cliche, then just trust God to do the rest. And let's make sure, let's make sure that this is all about his kingdom, not ours. We aren't building an empire. We're not. We're trying just to love people to Jesus. And there's a big difference in mindset there. I want to thank uh, Jonathan and Jared Blankenship. That's the pastor and associate pastor at Laurel Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He preached here back in February of 18. I preached a youth conference for them. They introduced this to their church. They... They put the majority of this book together for their church family, and, and they sent us all the files, no charge at all. Um, and his, his response to me was, the kingdom's bigger than our church. As many people as we can share this with, we will. This isn't original with us, um, but we, we are a benefit of someone else's work. And then Brother Mike Collins took it, and he personalized this, and that required some work, and he sent it to print, and I, I appreciate that. So let me explain to you um, what this what this is exactly if you go to the first page you can reference it on the screen but you can also look in your book and follow along with me 
First page says choose your one. There's four spaces there for you to write a name. Now, you don't have to have an address and phone and email. That's just if God brings you in contact with a waiter or a waitress or something like that. And, and maybe you need to jot down their phone number in here or whatever. This, this journal isn't going to be exposed to us. Um, we'll, we'll have some testimonies throughout the year. Um, but but this will be kind of a private thing for you. Um, so you fill out whatever, whatever uh, information you think is appropriate for your efforts in pursuing them. That's what that's for, okay? You can put one. Maybe God will build on that one throughout the year. Um, but we want everybody to at least try and reach one person. That's, that's the point, okay? How to use this journal, page number two. They're going to see three bullet points there, socialize, visualize, and evangelize. There will be opportunities in our fellowship Bible class and in our services to show how God is, is using this journal in your life. And so be prepared for those opportunities. Please share that with the staff, if you would, whenever, whenever God... Uh, gives you some fruit, and, and you're going to lead somebody to Christ. Man, I hope you'll share that with us so that we could leverage that to inspire and motivate other people in the congregation who might not be seeing as much fruit as you were. It's always a good thing to provoke one another good works. And then visualize. Utilize this journal um, throughout the year, and this is just going to give you something visual, because often we preach from the pulpit, reach people, and it's just a concept, isn't it? It's a theory. This is, gonna, this is really going to put feet to our sermon, so to speak. It's very practical. Then, of course, our goal is to evangelize. We're not just trying to make new friends. We're trying to make new friends and then lead them to Jesus. That's the goal. All right, here's a four-step plan in the next page. Number one, pray for your one. Number two, love your one. Number three, feed your one. And number four, invite your one. Let me talk about those one at a time. The next page, you'll see where it breaks down the first step. Pray for your one. Now, let me say this, that, that you don't have to do these things in order. They can be done simultaneously. They can be done all at the same time. Certainly, you want to pray for your one probably to start with, um, but, but you don't have to say, okay, after I've prayed for 10 days, now I can go to the next step. Okay, we, we, we can do all these things at one time. This is just kind of a guide. And so you're going to pray for your one. Um, this book is going to give you ideas for that. Um, in, you'll see how to pray for the lost. I think there are six or seven ways there that you can pray for the lost. Pray specifically by name for the unsaved. Pray for the open doors to share the gospel. So it's not just praying for them in, in one five-second prayer. If you really look at this journal, there's been some time put into how you can biblically pray for the lost sheep. Do you understand? And, and, and then you can go over and, and you'll see a prayer tracker. Do you see that? Prayer plan, prayer tracker, tracker gospel conversations. Now, I'm not going to show this with every step, but, but this is going to be with every single step. And what this is, this is self-accountability. Okay, this is going to help you to see, okay, when's the last time I actually earnestly prayed for this person? Isn't it true we can pray for two weeks then lose track? Okay, this is going to help us. So you, you, you put that prayer tracker. Maybe you want to pray once a week as a family for this person by name. And you're going to write that down when you do. Maybe you're going to pray every day. There's not necessarily enough spaces perhaps for 365 days, but you can get creative there. You're going to see in the bottom part of that section and in every tracker section a gospel conversation. What does that mean? That means that, that, that in every one of these steps... You are praying that God opens the door for you to have a gospel conversation. This is where most folks really, really get nervous. 
So, so here's what this journal's all about. It's about having natural, organic gospel conversations. I could go and preach John 4, how that Jesus talked about to the woman on the well. I mean, there is not a more natural conversation than that. Jesus never took a lighter to somebody, lit it in front of their face, and said, turn or burn. This is what hell feels like. Repent, or get you some of this. Okay, he didn't do that. John Vaught does that, but Jesus didn't do that. All right? Jesus didn't do that. He had very natural conversations. So, so for instance, if I, if, if I see a waitress, I go to IHOP at 6 o'clock every Sunday morning, and I have the same waitress every time, and I've been working on her literally for a year. And so if I ever get in a conversation with her, let's say I say, hey, do you go to church when you're not working on Sundays? And she tells me something, right there, that's a gospel conversation. I'm going to write that down. You know why? So I can remember it. And I can reference it. So next Sunday, I know, okay, we talked about that at least last week. How do I want to build on that? And I can say, are you ever off on Sundays? Then, man, I would love, if you're ever off, I would love to have you come to my Bible class. Write that down. You see what I'm saying? And just continue to build curiosity in there. Just a very natural, organic conversation. We also built these books because we believe in, in relational style. Of evangelism. That's not lifestyle evangelism to where if they just look at me and I live right, then they'll get saved. Well, they don't get saved unless they know the gospel. Right. Lifestyle is the first step, but they don't get saved because, wow, I can read John 3.16 on their back. Unless you have a tattoo, that doesn't work. And so you've got to have a conversation with them. And this is very relational. Pray, love, feed, invite. Okay? This, this isn't just cold turkey talking. Here's number two. Love. You're one. When I pursued Jenny Lee in college, you know what I did? I did things like call her, write her love notes. I bought her gifts. I took her out to eat. I surprised her by putting things in her mailbox. Why? I wanted her. I was pursuing her relentlessly because I wanted her to know I loved her. Now, people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so love your one. How are you going to do that? It gives you some kind of ideas here, but the, liberal, the little liberal love cards, that's a perfect start. Amen. Baking some cookies, put that little liberal love card in there, then follow up with them in about 10 days and see what happens. Get creative. When you pursue your one, love them. Text them. Say, what can I pray for you about? That's an awesome way to enter into a conversation. People are, are pretty, th I, honestly, I, I went uh, soul winning with John and Alfred a couple times, and every single time they said, hey, can you tell us one thing we can pray for you about? And instantly they were like thrown back, like, you really care about that? And they would write it down, they would generally pray about it, and if they got their contact info, they would follow up and say, just wanted you to know I prayed for you about that. It's, a, it's amazing. That's a great way to show people you love them. Of course, you can track that. Number three, you feed your one. The purpose of this step is to be intentional with creating an opportunity to have a gospel conversation. I'm just going to read it. By scheduling a meal with the person you are trying to reach with the gospel, you avail yourself to more time for discussing how Jesus can change their life. It will give them time to ask questions and limit their distractions. also provides a great opportunity for developing a genuine friendship that will help them to understand your love for them. Take them out to lunch, have them in your home, go out for a pop or coffee or whatever the case might be. Um, but, but I want to encourage you, church, please listen, I want to encourage you, at some point this year, open your home. Okay, don't just take them to IHOP. 
literally open your home to somebody who needs Jesus. Now, you can have people from the church over and fellowship, and that's great. We need to do that. We need to do that more. But maybe include somebody in your Bible class that's visiting and get to know them. Maybe include your one and have them in your home. You know there's something special when you have them in your home. My wife struggled with this for a long time. She's going to give a testimony eventually. I'm going to make her. She thought you had to be professional to do it. And I think she's a great cook. Honestly, I think she's a great cook. But she thought you had to do something like crazy elaborate and all these things. It just doesn't work that way. Who, who has a fully, like a full course meal every day of the week? I don't expect that when I go to somebody's house. Think about that, would you? Think about that. A lot can happen when you're sitting at the table with your one. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, number four, and then you'll see tucked in the journal is four steps for the gospel. Um, I was talking to uh, Bobby today, and, and I thought, man, if you want to memorize this, it's great. But th this is a reference point. If you, if you ever get in that gospel conversation and you need to know the plan of salvation, we put one in there. It's very, very good. Number four, invite your one. Okay? This is very, very good to keep track of because you can invite, invite them to a church event. We're having married people night out. That's a great event. A lot of marriages are struggling. They'll never come to a Sunday service. But if you say, hey, we're having this marriage event. They got free daycare. There's a dessert. You can go out for a date with us, a double date first, and then come here. That's a great way to invite. If they come, or even if you just invite them, write that down. So then when, by the time you get to March or April, you can look back and see how many times that I actually invite them. And, and I, I think we might be surprised that we don't invite as much as we think we might. Does that make sense? We need to be relentlessly pursuing them, not bothering them or, or, or whatever. You get the balance there. Be sensitive to that. But take advantage of every opportunity to invite them to any church event you can. You never know what, what God will use to get them uh, to this place and build connections to where they'll be open to the gospel. Now, the second part of inviting them is not just inviting them to church, but inviting them to Jesus. Again, this is the part where a lot of people just almost cringe. It's like, oh, man, what if they ask me something I don't know how to answer? It's not, I have a hard time talking to my spouse about spiritual things, let alone a stranger. Man, the awkwardness of that. Um, well, I got something to help you, especially if you have a smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, I'll draw you pictures on a three-by-five card. But, but there, there, there's an app that Lancaster Baptist Church came out with called Commission. Would you put it up there, Tammy? It's a new personal evangelism tool that helps you explain the gospel to others. And it's so simple. It's a free app. You can download the app from uh, the Apple Store or Google Play. And you just type in commission and that'll come up. Show them the next slide, Tammy. Uh, it, it walks you through illustrations or explanations of salvation. A lot of times I don't carry tracks or I don't carry my journal with me. And so I can pull out my phone and show them right there. You never know when that door's going to open, do you? You never know. And so this has scripture verses, and it only has like three or four slides. It's very, very simple. Show them the next thing, even if they have questions about baptism. They have a slide to explain baptism to other people, because a lot of people in our community truly think that baptism is what gets them to heaven. And so when you talk to them, and you say, do you know for sure? They say, well, I was baptized as a baby, or I was baptized as a kid, or I was whatever. Then you can go to this slide, and you can show them what baptism really means, because sometimes it's hard to retain what you hear from the pulpit about that. And put it into words. This articulates it for you. And here's what I really like about it. It's in multiple languages. And so us Caucasians who don't speak Spanish, we're not limited necessarily by that. And especially 
uh, so many of our Spanish folks who have Spanish-speaking family members and friends, this isn't just English. You can use this. And, and so you can leverage this. I don't know how many languages are on there, but, but quite a few. And, and, and so this is, this is really a, a helpful tool. I'd encourage you to download that tonight and get familiar with that. Would you go to the last part of your book? It asks the question, what do I do now? It says, my one was saved. Well, here's a good step. Begin discipling your one. What does that mean? Mentor them. Teach them. Spend time with them. Help them take the next step. That might be baptism. That might be church membership. That might be church involvement. Help them. Teach them. Don't put that on the shoulders of the church. You stay with them. You teach them. And one of the greatest things you can, you can encourage them to do is take the first steps class. In 2019, we hope that God allows us to have that class just continually rolling on Wednesday nights and, and, and just continually assimil assimilating people into that class and into the life of the church. And so that's a great thing to do. My one attended a church service. We'll keep reaching them. Okay, again, I preached it in the message. Just because they came for friend day doesn't mean now all of a sudden your, your job's done. Have a conversation about what they thought about church. Take them out to eat afterwards and say, hey, you got any questions about what you heard? What did you think? Um, try inviting them to another church event or function. And then here's an important one. My one didn't respond at all. Okay, remember you're, you're responsible for faithfulness. God's responsible for fruitfulness. Keep reaching them. And here's, I like this one. Just choose another one. If that sheep got away from you, go get you another one. There's a lot of fish in the pond. A lot of people that need Jesus. And I'm telling you, this, this exercise has potential to be both very encouraging and very discouraging. So don't get discouraged if your one just isn't responding. Just keep going after him. And if God leads you to another one, then fill out that other one. Here's what I want to do for just a time of prayer tonight. I know I preached hard and then we kind of went into this. Um, but I, I, I want you just to bring your journal with you. And, and I want you to find a spot at the altar. Some of you are more comfortable maybe praying in your seat, and that's okay. But I want you to do business with God for a few minutes. And I want you to ask God, God, would you lead me to my one? Maybe some of you already know. You already know what family member it is. You already know what coworker it is. It's already, God's put it in your mind's eye. I mean, you can see their face, and you're so excited now to be able to track that. But maybe some of you are like, man, I... I need to, like, meet some lost people. This has revealed that I'm, if, if you're having a hard time writing down one person who needs Jesus, then you might be stuck in a sterilized spiritual bubble. And you might need to say, is there an organization I can join in town, a nonprofit organization or a board, join a board, or do something to where I can get around real life sinners that need Jesus? Do I need a coach? Maybe I need to coach my child's team or my grandchild's team. I can meet people that way. That's a great inroads for me. I do it all the time. Whatever you need to do to reach your one, I hope and pray that you'll take this seriously. Would you imagine the possibilities if every single person reached their one over 16 years old in here? Just to, in your mind's eye, would you imagine the possibility? Where would we put all the people? How much energy would our services have if we had that many new believers in one building? They don't know, they don't know any better but to come to the altar every time there's, there's, a, there's a message. 
And when the singing, they're trying to learn the songs that they just feel God, and they love it. And they don't know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, but they're glued in during the message. Do you imagine the possibilities if everybody would reach their one? Why don't we just ask God if he'll let us? Fair enough? Just ask him. Well, that's impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. Stop being so human. Let's trust the one who can do anything and everything, whenever and however he wants. God wants to save sinners. And he's going to use us to do it. I believe he is. Bring your journal. Let's pray. Come around the altar.